0: If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 27 to 36. I wanted to look at this section of John's Gospel in particular because this week we'll be celebrating Good Friday and uh, next week, Sunday, we'll be celebrating Easter, and uh, so this passage in John's Gospel takes place uh, quite shortly after uh, the triumphal entry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which uh, Pastor Dale preached on from Luke's Gospel last week, and Jesus has, has just announced uh, that the time of, for his death has come. His death looms only a few days away, and so he's setting his mind upon the cross. And so I thought that this would be helpful for us as we consider, uh, in a special way this week, uh, Jesus going towards the cross. So John chapter 12, starting at verse 27. Jesus says, "'Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour?' But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Let's ask God for his help. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you for the power that is in it. And we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Cause us to see the beauty of Christ. Crucified and resurrected for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the main point of the message this evening is uh, very simply this The glorious yet scandalous crucified Christ is the one whom all men and women must believe in in order to be saved. It's pretty simple. So, we'll unpack this point by looking at three points. First, that the crucified Christ is glorious. Second, that the crucified Christ is scandalous. And then third, that the crucified Christ must be believed. So as we look at these three points, we'll see the main point more clearly. That the, cru- uh, that the glorious yet scandalous crucified Christ is the one who all men and women must believe in order that they may be saved. In order for us to understand our passage uh, that's before us, we have to begin with a word about the context. Uh, what's going on in the Gospel of John to this point? John's gospel, as you may know, was uh, written uh, in order to persuade his readers that Jesus of Nazareth was God in human flesh, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. John tells us as much in in, uh, John chapter 20. And in the first half of John's gospel, he's focused on the two or three years of Jesus' uh, public earthly ministry, and John is highlighting Jesus' teaching uh, and Jesus' miracles, John captures uh, for us as Jesus is is teaching and as he's performing signs, which is a very important emphasis in the first half of John's gospel, uh, he he shows us Jesus with the intention of, of us seeing that Jesus was the promised rescuer of God's people. And as Jesus is teaching and performing these signs, Jesus is frequently upsetting the religious leaders who did not believe him. Eventually, their animosity towards Jesus is stirred so hot that after Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the grave, which happens in John chapter 11, the religious leaders conspire to put Jesus to death. Now, as John recounts Jesus' ministry and his conflict with the religious leaders, we get the sense from John that we're supposed to be wearing watches as we read the book that he's written. This is because throughout the first half of John's gospel, uh, there are repeated references to Jesus' time or Jesus' hour not yet uh, having come. So for example, in John chapter 2, when uh, Jesus is at the wedding feast at Cana, uh, his mother comes to him and and asks him to deal with the shortage of, of wine, and Jesus responds by saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Later in John 7 and 8, we get two references to the Jewish leaders wanting to arrest Jesus, but they don't lay a hand on him, we're told, because his hour had not yet come. So these references want us to, uh, make us want to look down at our, our wristwatches and then look ahead and wonder, uh, when will Jesus' hour be? What is this hour pointing towards? Another way of of putting the question, which is very familiar to parents traveling with small children, the question that we're asking as we go through John's Gospel is, are we there yet? Uh, Are are we there yet? Where are we going? Are we there yet? When is Jesus' hour come? And that's why our chapter, John 12, is a significant uh, chapter in the book of John. Jesus has has just been anointed uh, for his death, and he has entered Jerusalem as a king. And after he enters into Jerusalem, some Greeks come to him uh, and they want to see him. They they come to the disciples and and they ask for an audience with Jesus. And it's uh, in this encounter with these non-Israelites, with these Gentiles, that suddenly a, a switch flips in Jesus' mind and suddenly Jesus announces, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what is this hour? What time has arrived? Well, the hour that John's gospel has been pointing towards, anticipating, is the hour of his death. We know this uh, because right after Jesus says that his hour has come, he says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, a clear reference to Jesus' death. So, when only three verses later in our passage today, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And when he questions whether he should pray, Father, save me from this hour, we must recognize that it's because of his impending death upon the cross that he is troubled. Now, Jesus is deeply distressed. Jesus expresses that he is extremely pained at the prospect of the cross that lies before him. We see Jesus uh, showing a similar anguish when he prays the prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, uh, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is troubled, not just by the fact that he is going to die, but by the recognition that he is about to go to the cross, taking on the sin of his people. He knew that he would not only die, but that he would die as the Passover lamb. He would be made sin, and God's perfect wrath would be poured out upon him for the sins of his people. Jesus was troubled not because he was dying uh, as perhaps a martyr or as one of the prophets who had gone before him, but he is troubled because he is going to die as a sacrifice for sin. Now, though this is what stirs up the anguish in Jesus' soul, Jesus will not ask for this trial to pass from him as he does later in the garden. He knows that it's for this reason that he came, that the Son of God came into the world to die. Now, just these are two passing points of application that are, I just don't want us to miss. Uh, first, uh, the fact that we are deeply troubled in spirit is not necessarily an indication of sin. Notice that, that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is deeply troubled in spirit. Now, sometimes we can be deeply troubled in spirit because we are not trusting the Lord or we are desiring things improperly. But having a deeply troubled soul is not an indication of an absence of grace. And I think that's just important to to note. But secondly, we should notice how Jesus responds when he is at his deepest, most troubling uh, moment. As he's experiencing the most severe of trials, we must watch how he prays and learn from it. He prays, Father, glorify your name. There is much for us to learn there. But after Jesus says this, what happens next will begin to, to help us answer a first question. What is the reason for thinking that the cross of Christ is so glorious? Well, three times in Jesus' earthly ministry, the Father speaks from heaven, and when he does it, it's always to affirm or validate the ministry of the Son. Now here, the voice of heaven, uh, God the Father, thunders forth to say that just as God the Father has, has glorified himself in Jesus' ministry and in his miracles and in his teaching, so God the Father will glorify his name in the suffering and dying of the Son in a few days' time. That's what God uh, means when he says, I will glorify it again. So the crucifixion of Christ is glorious because God has said it is so. It is so. God the Father's testimony is that this hour, the suffering and dying of His Son will be for His own glory. The whipping, the beating, the humiliation, the taunting of the guards and the crowd, the thirst and the ache, the piercing of the side, the Father's voice ripples over it all and says, glorious, I will glorify my name in this. Now, though the father's voice thunders, the crowd's response shows that they do not see clearly. They are spiritually blind. Some say it's the voice of an angel. This is the spiritual response. Others say it's merely thunder, the naturalistic response. And we'll see that this misunderstanding, this, this spiritual blindness runs deep, but we'll come to that in a few minutes. But God says he will glorify his name in the suffering and dying of Jesus. How does he do this? It seems so strange to say that God will glorify himself in the suffering and dying of his son. Well, verses 31 to 33 give us three distinct ways that the crucifixion of Christ contributes to God's glory. First, the death of Christ judges the world now. We know elsewhere from Scripture that there is a a future and final judgment But that can't be in view here since Jesus is speaking of this judgment taking place now at the time of his death, in this hour. Now commentators have have, uh, varied on how to treat this, but I think uh, that we should take it to mean that the cross of Jesus Christ exposes the spiritual condition of the world. The sufferings and dying of the Messiah not only show how severe the problem is that the world would put to death the sinless Son of God, but it also sh- serves to divide the world by showing uh, those who would uh, hate the slain Savior and those who would embrace him. The second accomplishment of the cross, this hour of Christ's suffering, is that Satan is cast out and defeated. Now this is, this is just, it's amazing to think. Uh, it, the defeat of the ruler of the world, a reference to Satan, happens at the cross, So Jesus is saying that in the hour of his dying, in the lashes that tore the skin from his back, in the blood that trickled down from the son of man's forehead beneath the crown of thorns, in the trembling of the muscles and the failing of the organs of the prince of peace, the mortal blow is dealt against Satan, the prince of darkness. That is not what we might expect. In the darkest hour, when the champion of the people of God would hang from an execution stake, when all hope seemed lost, like it had been extinguished, the devil is defeated there. Now, perhaps you might remember the scene in in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Aslan, that mighty lion, in order to save Edmund, uh, gives himself over to the wicked witch. And the mighty Aslan, whose teeth and claws could have easily devoured uh, any one of the witch's henchmen, is willingly bound and beaten and taken to the stone table, and there the wicked witch prepares to drive the knife through the mighty lion. And Susan and Lucy are looking on, and they see the wickedness of, of, of the knife gleaming under torchlight, and then Lewis says, at last the witch drew near. She took Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, "'And now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you could save the human traitor?' Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever and you have lost your own life and not saved his in that knowledge despair and die. And then she plunges the knife into Aslan. Well, the battle was won at Narnia's stone table, but despite what the witch supposed, it was her defeat that was spelled as Aslan the lion was put to death. For by his death, Aslan saves Edmund from the deep magic, and he would come back to life again to defeat the witch. And this is exactly what happened at the cross. Satan uh, might have said similar words as Jesus hung from the cross. Fool, do you think that by all this, by being born of a virgin, by walking among these pathetic humans, by suffering, that you could save these human traitors? Now you've lost your own life and not saved theirs. Despair and die. But amazingly, it was precisely in this moment, in his death, In Jesus' death, that Satan is cast out. Now, this does not mean that Satan does not wreak havoc anymore, but his defeat is sure. It means that the greatest weapon in Satan's arsenal, the record of of, uh, the sins of God's people has been stripped from him, and he has been ejected from the courtroom of of heaven, no longer able to accuse the people of God. He has been cast out, and his defeat is sure. Now the third result of the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, is found in verse 32. When Jesus is lifted up, pointing to his death, John tells us in verse 33, he will draw all people to himself. Now it's important here to realize that Jesus is not saying that every person will be saved. Only a few verses later, uh, John tells us uh, that unless you believe in Christ, you remain in darkness and there are those who refuse to believe and who remain in darkness. What Jesus means is that by his death, he will draw all kinds of people to himself. Remember that this whole discussion is taking place because some Greeks, some uh, non-Israelites, some Gentiles had come to see Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that he will, uh, as he goes to the cross to be crucified, he will die and he will draw and take not just people from Israel, but Greeks and Romans and Congolese and Iranians and Syrians and Uh, Dutch people and Chinese people and Brazilians and Americans into his kingdom from every tribe and language and people and nation Jesus the lamb who was slain will draw his people into his kingdom it's because of the cross J.C. Ryle says that that Jesus uh, will will draw people from all nations like a magnet which attracts iron filings So we ask, what's the reason for thinking that the crucifixion of Christ was a glorious thing? And well, it's because of the Father's pronouncement that it is so, and that we see that he glorifies his name by exposing the spiritual condition of the world, by defeating the devil, and by bringing salvation to the nations. To some, however, the idea of a crucified Christ is not glorious, but scandalous, only scandalous. John makes it clear that the crowd thinks just that. They've recognized that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. They got that right. And they, they understood that he said that he will die, but they could not believe it. They just can't put these two things together. You say you're the Messiah and you say you're going to die doesn't add up. In the Greek, uh, the crowd's response is stated with emphasis. We have heard that the law, that the scriptures say that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say Jesus, that the Son of Man, who you're claiming to be, must be lifted up to die. Who is this Son of Man, they would say with a sneer. The crowd is only getting half the puzzle. Uh, They understand uh, who Jesus uh, is saying he is, that he's claiming to be the Christ, the promised rescuer of God's people, and they're correct in saying that the promised Redeemer would remain forever he was to be an eternal king. He wasn't just going to usher in a few good years, uh, but, but he was to usher in an everlasting kingdom. Not sure exactly what scripture they had in mind, but Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Ezekiel 37, 25 says, The Messiah, the heir of David, will be a, a prince over the Lord's people forever. Daniel 7 says that the one who is like a son of man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations should serve him and his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. They were right, but they only got half the truth. They didn't get the whole picture. They got one biblical truth, but they failed to see it in the context of another equally important truth. They could see that the Messiah would reign forever, but they could not see that the Messiah and his eternal kingdom would be established through his suffering and dying. They saw Isaiah 52, 13, that the servant of the Lord would be high and lifted up, but they could not see Isaiah 53, that he must first be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, cut off from the land of the living, and stricken for the transgressions of his people. The idea of the Savior of Israel being lifted up to die, was scandalous. They could not believe in this sort of Redeemer. And is, this, is the idea of this Christ, of a crucified Christ, any less scandalous today? It's not a Savior that has suffered and died and borne the sins of His people uh, that people uh, want, we're told. It's, it's the kingdom Jesus. It's practical Jesus. It's self-improvement, life-improvement, Dr. Phil Jesus. A number of years ago, I uh, worked in a Christian bookstore, and one of the uh, most popular authors, uh, well, regrettably so, uh, was a pastor. And, and I think he proves just how scandalous this idea of a crucified Savior is. He says uh, this in a sermon, uh, which is online. You want to know why people at your job are not Christians right now? Because you are preaching to them Jesus Christ. That's not what you're supposed to preach. You preach the kingdom of God to folks on the job. Tell them you can get your citizenship back. There's a kingdom that belongs to you even before you were born. You were supposed to be part of a a government rulership that has dominion over the earth. Your conditions are not supposed to control you. You're supposed to control them. And we just pause and say, uh, we could hear sort of the the, the Jewish crowd saying something similar in their day. Jesus, you're talking, when you're talking about the kingdom, that's good stuff. Stick to to that. People don't want to hear that you must die People want to hear how we can really take charge of our lives and and how we can uh, not be controlled by our Roman circumstances, but how we can uh, control our own lives. Unfortunately, the preacher continued, people ain't worried about no blood and no cross. They're worried about how they're going to make it through the day, he said. This takes the pressure off because you don't want to be talking about no blood in the boardroom. You don't want to be talking about no blood on the school ground. You don't want to be talking about blood and nails and the spear in the side because that's not what you're supposed to be talking about. You're supposed to be talking about how to solve people's problems. That's good news. No, that's demonic. It's spiritual blindness. The idea of a bloody, suffering Savior is not what people want to hear. That's true. It's just as distasteful to people today as it was to the Jewish crowd then. But God has said that that which scandalizes is how he will glorify his name. Uh, It's it's how our, our enemy is defeated. It's how we're reconciled to God. Whether people want to hear that or not, it's what Jesus says we must hear and believe. Now, the crowd does not believe the claims that Jesus is making. To them, he cannot be who he claims to be. He cannot be the Christ if he will do what he claims he will, that is suffer and die. And Jesus, sensing their hard-hearted unbelief, he doesn't answer their question, a strategy that we saw in the, in the passage which was preached on this morning. Instead, he tells them what they must hear, what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And he issues an invitation. But in so doing, he also issues a warning. Christ's invitation, not only those, uh, to those who heard his words then, but to those uh, who hear his words now, even here tonight, is simple. Believe in me. Believe in the light is how he phrases it exactly, but we know elsewhere that he's talking about himself. Believe in me. You must put your trust in me. Put your faith in me. Count uh, in me to do what I've said I would do, Jesus says. This is Christ's invitation to them and to you. The invitation of Christ for you to believe is made this evening to you, and you must not put it off. In fact, Jesus presses you with three reasons why you must accept his invitation to receive him by faith today. First, because time is short. It is a great, grave mistake that many make not to make the most of present opportunities to repent and believe. Because time is limited. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus warns the crowd that time is short and the opportunity limited. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer walk while you have the light, while you have the light, believe. Jesus is urgently pressing the crowd saying, I'm here with you now. Your Savior is before you. The the, the grace and mercy of God are freely offered to you now. Your sin and shame can be dealt with now. Believe in me while there's still time. The time is short second reason is, is related quite closely to the first. The time is short, but the penalty for rejecting the light is also severe. Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. In the scriptures, darkness is an image often used to capture uh, spiritual blindness or ignorance, but it's also uh, an image of imprisonment and judgment Those who do not respond to Jesus, those who who do not respond by trusting in him and by believing in him, will be overtaken and destroyed by darkness. They will stumble around in spiritual darkness to their everlasting destruction. Those who will not throw themselves upon Jesus uh, with faith when he is offered to them freely in the gospel will perish forever in darkness. So is this you? Have you not come to walk in the light? To believe in the Christ who was slain for sinners? Have you come to trust this Jesus, this glorious, crucified Lamb who was slain? Have you trusted in Him? Not the Dr. Phil Jesus, the slain Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Friend, if you have not trusted in Jesus... You must. But the good news is that he is held forth to you in the gospel today. His invitation still stands to you today. Do not reject him. Do not reject him as he is now offered to you. I plead with you. Don't do that. Do not put him off. Do not delay. Do not say that you will do it later. Do not say that you'd rather live life on your own terms first or that maybe you'll get serious about Jesus when kids come along, do not say that you will deal with Jesus later. The invitation is made to you now. The opportunity to respond and receive him is extended to you now. There is no guarantee of more time, and there is no guarantee of another opportunity. But Jesus not only warns the crowd that their time is short and the penalty for rejecting him is severe, but he holds forth a beautiful promise, urging them to believe. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of the light. In other words, he's saying those who believe have been made sons and daughters of God. They are saved from the darkness and they enter into God's marvelous light as his children, members Of the household of God. Those who believe that this crucified and resurrected uh, Christ, who believe in him, receive God as their father. They receive his fatherly love. They become children of the light. So Christ, the crucified one, invites you now through his word believe in me. What will you do with his invitation? Let's pray. God of all mercy. Only you can give the gift of faith. Only you can give eyes to see Christ as the crucified and resurrected Savior that we must believe in in order to be saved. Only you can give new hearts to love this crucified lamb who was slain. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would please do that. That, that you would cause anyone who has not yet done that here this evening to see Jesus as the Lamb who takes all our sins away. I pray, Lord, that you would give that gift of spiritual sight. Do this gracious work, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.